You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. And together, as we consider these three things which are guaranteed to bring you joy, I think you want joy in your heart. I certainly do. Happiness is a little different than joy. Happiness is determined by convenient arrangement of circumstances. Joy is determined by a relationship regardless of the circumstances. And so look with me, if you will, please, at some very strange verses, beginning with verse 11, which picks up in the middle of a thought. There the Apostle Paul says, "...in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Three things guaranteed to bring you joy in your life. Father, as we bow before you, we come hungry of heart, eager to hear what you, by your Spirit, would say to us through your Word. Now, Father, my prayer is that you would choose to use me as a messenger this morning. I realize you do not have to. I realize you could choose to speak directly to the heart of every person here. But, oh, Father in heaven, I believe the message on my heart is one you've placed there. I am burdened with it, eager to deliver it. And Father, I know that every person in this room can walk out of this building this morning with a heart filled with joy. Oh, Heavenly Father, how I pray, trusting that you would send your Holy Spirit, that Christ would be glorified, that people would be drawn to you, Lord Jesus, and have their lives set right with God. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. In the pastor's Bible class earlier this morning, and same class and content will be uh, held after the worship service this morning, we were dealing with the issue of AIDS. What does the Scripture say about AIDS? A rather strange topic, but we're dealing with issues that confront us as a nation. And the more I began to spill out the, the statistics regarding this this terrible, terrible disease uh, plaguing not only the world but more specifically our nation and our community, the sadder in heart I became. I mean, when I began to realize the judgment of God on our nation because of our open denial of His principles, His truths, my heart just uh, began to grieve within me. And yet when we came to the end of that uh, time of Bible study, I was able to say to the class, now look, let's end this on a positive note. There are some things 
you can do. There is a way to respond. And I want to tell you this morning, dear friends, that the one of, not the only, but one of the main reasons I am a pastor is because I believe that in the midst of a world which has many displays of wickedness and perversion and will reap ultimately the judgment of God, there is a way for you and for me to walk in joy. The Bible says that in the presence of the Lord there is fullness, as a matter of fact, of joy. Now the world is out for happiness. Happiness says I'm happy if the circumstances of my life are conveniently arranged and if they are not conveniently arranged, I'm either sad or I am mad, but I'm not happy. Joy, on the other hand, is something that is far deeper, much more expressive, much more genuine than mere happiness. Joy is determined not by a convenient arrangement of circumstances, but joy is in your heart when you have a right relationship with God, and you can have that. There is not one person here who is beyond having a right relationship with God this morning. I don't care the path you have traveled in your life. I don't care what's happened in your past. The good news for you this morning is that you can have genuine joy in your life. And no, what am I, no matter what the circumstances may be, you can walk with joy. I've seen people who, for whom the least little bit of trouble just caused them to be downcast. You'd talk at them. I mean, they would look like they've been eating oatmeal out of, a, out of a drain pipe. I mean, they're so sad and upset. And just some little something. I've seen other people who have had some of the most uh, unusual, you would call them tragedies of life. They might be the tragedy of a loss of a, of a family member or the loss of fortune or, or personal physical health. And yet there is about their countenance a glow. There is an expression of genuine joy. They are not cast down in the midst of it all. And don't you want to walk with victory like that? Well, you can. And so this morning I want to share with you three things that will guarantee you joy in your life. So with your Bible open, let's look as we continue our study through the book of Colossians. Let's look at these verses beginning with verse 11. First of all, if you want to have genuine joy in your life, it is important that you certify your fellowship with Christ. Let me say that again. It is important that you certify, settle, put the stamp on, make sure it is true, certify your fellowship with Christ. Now look with me for just a few moments at two verses which um, I suppose many people could just read them and gloss over them and say, well, there's a, a lot of big long words and they don't really mean anything to me. But verses 11 and 12, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, where you all, wherein ye also are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. Now, what do I mean when I say you can certify your fellowship with Christ and in doing that you will have great joy? What is meant by that? Well, let me give you an illustration. Let's suppose that you have a couple that comes down the aisle of this church She's dressed in a beautiful white wedding gown. 
And he is standing over here. He is as nervous as he can be. I mean, he is fretful. His hands are clammy because he knows that in just a few moments he is going to be taking her as his wife and assuming the responsibilities with her husband. And so he comes down here. She comes down the aisle. Her father looks at him as if he is a creep and a worm, which he probably is. And um, I say, may I ask who gives this woman to be this man's wife? And he says, well, do I have to? As a matter of fact, some fathers say, give nothing. If you knew what this cost me to have this wedding, you wouldn't even use a word like give. But um, anyway, he says, uh, my, her mother and I. And so he places her hand inside the hand of that creep. And they come up here on the platform. And we go through the wedding ceremony. Well, a part of that ceremony is the exchanging of vows. And you know, here's where you find out whether a person is telling the truth or a liar because they say things like this. Before God, before witnesses, I take you to be my wife or to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, to have and to hold from this day forward. And she says the same. Then later on in that wedding, there's generally an exchange of tokens, wedding bands. And those wedding bands are a symbol. This person is married. Now, I want you to see something. First of all, they have certified their marriage pictorially. And secondly, the rest of their life, they need to certify their marriage practically. You see, it gives her a great deal of joy. I think that bride a great deal of joy to, to uh, look down there and see on her husband's hand the wedding band, and it gives him joy to see the same on her hand. But I wonder how that person would feel if um, two or three days later that, that bride or that groom just took that wedding band off. I can't even get mine off. Took that wedding band off and, and said, I, I just don't think I want to wear this anymore. I think there would be a sinking feeling in the heart of that partner. Well, why? Well, he might give some excuse. I just don't want to wear it anymore. And what happens when down the through the days and through the weeks, suddenly this man or this woman begins showing up in maybe a bar, maybe a theater, maybe a restaurant, and you can look over there at that finger and you can see there's been a ring there, but there's no ring there anymore. And that individual's behavior portrays anything but love and faithfulness and dedication to his partner or to her partner. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. I want to tell you something. It gives me great joy to wear this wedding band. I love my wife more today than I loved her the day we were married. It seems that my love for her has increased every day. She is, to me, the most wonderful woman in all the world. But you know what else? It gives me great joy and great pleasure to certify our marriage not only by wearing a wedding band, but by doing things that express my faithfulness to her. Let me give you an example. Men, when I go on the, um, let's say I'm, I'm going to preach a revival, 
I'm staying in some town that's away from here, and they've put the preacher up in a, in a hotel or a motel, did you know, that uh, I'll stand there in the doorway of that hotel, and I will say before I even go in, before God, I want to vow that I will not turn on the television when I go in this room. Before God, I want to vow that the time that I spend in this room will be given over totally to God that I will love him, that I will do those things, that I would not be ashamed for God or for my wife or for any member of my family to see. Before God, I make this pledge. Now, I'm away from my wife. She may be miles away, but it gives me joy in my heart to know that I'm doing those things which please her, that I'm doing those things which, in essence, say, not only do I have a wedding band, but with my life, I love you. Now, look again at verses 11 and 12. You see, here we find that our relationship with God is certified both pictorially and practically. Our relationship with the Lord is certified, first of all, pictorially by baptism. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jews were marked out, Jewish men were marked out as being Jews by circumcision. It was a picture, really, which indicated that the life stream of man was sinful. It was tainted with sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Abraham was a friend of God. Abraham was made right with God before circumcision, but God gave that ritual of circumcision as a way of marking out all those who are in his family. By the way, when a Gentile, a man who was not born a Jew and circumcised then on the eighth day as a Jew would have been, when a man who was a Gentile decided to believe as Jews believe, he still underwent the ritual of circumcision, and then later on he was publicly baptized. That is, he was publicly immersed. Now, when John the Baptist came on the scene and he began preaching uh, repentance of sin, one of the things he encouraged people to do was to be baptized. Well, they understood that because for many, many years, people had been publicly baptized as a way of saying, I'm changing from this kind of person to this kind of person because they knew that that's what the Jews did. When a Gentile became a Jew, he was privately circumcised, later on publicly baptized. And so in the New Testament, baptism became a way of pictorially certifying the fact that you were born again, that you are a part of the family of God. And so that's why he says it's a picture. Notice here, he says, in whom you are also circumcised with a circumcision without hands. You put off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He said, here it is for you Christians, buried with him in baptism, wherein you also are risen with him through faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. Now, I want to tell you something. There are many people walking around who are missing something in their relationship with God. They say, I've received Christ as my Savior. I, I know Him as my Savior. I believe I'm going to heaven when I die. But they have never been willing to openly certify that through the picture of baptism. Something Christ did, He was baptized. Something Christ commanded us to do, something the early church did. Baptism was a way of pictorially certifying that you're a part of the family of Christ, buried with Christ in baptism and the death, raised to walk in newness of life. doesn't make us a Christian, but it just pictorially certifies that. Now, the other side of that coin is that we need to practically certify that we are a child of God, that we're in fellowship with Him with our behavior. 
Notice what he says here in this verse 12. He says, You're buried with him in baptism, wherein you also are risen with him through faith of the operation of God. Now, this word operation has the same thought as our word energy. He said, You believe that the same energy that had the power to raise Christ from the dead is at work in you, helping you to be, helping you to live the kind of life that a believer ought to live. You've been raised out of the deadness of your sins. Now you're free to live a life that is holy and pure and right with God. So once I have pictorially certified that I'm married, the rest of my life is to be a practical expression of that. Once you have pictorially certified that you're a child of God through baptism, your whole life is to be lived as a practical expression of the fact that you love God. Now listen, I don't know about you, but I know about me. And when I do not practically certify my fellowship with God by living like a Christian ought to live, a cloud moves into my spirit. My joy is dissipated. It seems there is a barrier. Whether that in reality there is or not, it seems there is a barrier. It seems that my spiritual strength begins to wane. The Bible says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And when I begin to do things that are not clean and my heart is not pure, I can tell you that a cloud moves in and joy moves out. So, Brother Tom, what are these verses saying to me this morning? Saying that one of the things I can do that will guarantee me joy in my life is to know Christ and then certify my fellowship with Christ pictorially by baptism, but practically by my behavior, by living the kind of life that a believer ought to live, just making up my mind that by the grace of God, not by dint of my, my determination, but by the grace of God, I will seek to be and do the things that a believer in Christ would do that would honor him, whether I'm in church or out of church, whether I'm where you can see me or whether I'm where God and God alone can see me. See, you really are what you do when you are alone. And the great joy that comes to your life comes when you certify your fellowship with Christ. All right, number two. Not only will you have great joy in your life when you certify your fellowship in Christ, pictorially by baptism, practically by your behavior, but great joy will come to your life if you'll just take time this morning, for instance, to consider your forgiveness by Christ. Take the time to consider what it means to be forgiven by Christ. Now, before I read these next two verses, 13 and 14, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you how a man who committed a crime in the days of the Old Testament was treated. Knowing that will help you understand the next two verses which I'm going to read. When a man committed a crime, he was placed in jail or in prison. Let's suppose that he had stolen something. Let's suppose that he had stolen uh, um, ten goats from his neighbor. I can't imagine how you would try to hide ten goats, but this guy's not very smart anyway. So he steals ten goats from his neighbor. Well, they put him in jail. Down at what would be the equivalent of our courthouse, 
they would have this man's name and in a wax tablet beside his name, they would write the crime and the punishment. Over here at his house, embarrassing as that was to have it on record there, over here at his house, they would go to the doorpost and they would tack onto the doorpost a notification that this man was a thief and that he had stolen 10 goats. How embarrassing. So here he is in prison and the whole world knows what he's done wrong. It's judicially recorded and then the whole society knows it's recorded because it's on his doorpost. Now this man only has one chance. And here it is. It is in his next of kin. In the Old Testament, this man is called the kinsman redeemer. You see that, for instance, in the book of Ruth. They would then go to his next of kin. And they would say to his next of kin, you know, your brother or it might be your cousin, whoever his closest kin was, has committed a crime. He has stolen five goats. It's on record down here. He's been tried, sentenced. He's in jail. It's on record there. You can go over to his house and you can see. And his kinsman redeemer would shake his head and say, I know I'm embarrassed to even be related to it. Then they would say, you know, the only hope for his getting out is for you to repay what has been taken. And sometimes the repayment had to be not just once but twice or whatever, but that would be noted on that, on that piece of parchment or, or paper on the door. Now, the man in jail sure hoped that his kinsman redeemer would comply because if he didn't, he stayed in jail. And so the kinsman redeemer would think about this and he might say, yes, I will, I will undertake to set my next of kin free. And so he would start bringing these goats back to this man. And every time he would bring back a goat, they would go over and on the doorpost, they would make a note of that. And now down there in the courthouse, they would make a note of that. One goat, two, three, four, eight, nine, ten. Now, when the tenth goat was repaid, notice what they did. They would go down to the courthouse and they would take a blotter and they would blot out the record of that man's crime and its punishment out of that wax tablet. They would go to his house and they would write on the doorpost there on that piece of paper, they would write these words, paid in full. By the way, that is precisely what Jesus said on the cross now. Tetelestai means it is finished or paid in full. Then they would go down to the prison and they would open the doors and the man would be free to go. Now, let's read these verses. Verse 13, You, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. What is he saying? All right. What does it say in Romans 3.23? The wages of sin is what? Say it together. Death. All right. You being dead. What does he say? Being dead in your sin. So, in God's courtroom, your name, you're a sinner. The wages of sin is death. You are in bondage, the bondage of sin. On the doorpost of your heart, there is written, the wages of sin is death. All right. So, you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh... What has he done? He has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. You say, how could all of my trespasses be forgiven? Notice what he says here. Blotting out, look at this, blotting out the handwriting 
of ordinances that was against us. Notice what he says here. Here is the Old Testament. Written in the Old Testament are all these laws. The ways of God. If you commit one sin, or a million, the wages of sin is death. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary or hostile to us. It was going to kill us. And took it out of the way. What did he do? He nailed it to the cross. Jesus was what? Our kinsman redeemer, our next of kin. He was not a criminal. He was not a sinner. He was the perfect son of God. I couldn't die for you. You couldn't die for me. We're all in jail. Jesus, the only one free, took it upon himself to pay the wages of sin, which was death. When he was on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. That is, paid in full. My death. The Bible says Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So now notice what he says here. First of all, he says here, there's something serious about sin. What is the seriousness of sin? It is this. The seriousness of sin's debt is that you die. You spend your forever separated from God in hell. Verse 13, you being dead in your sins. But notice the scope of the Savior's deliverance. He says, he has forgiven you all trespasses. Can you imagine? God has said to all those who receive Christ by faith as their Savior, who trust in Him, if you were to come this morning and say, I want to give my life to Christ, or I want to trust in Jesus, or something like this, I want to be saved. If you were to come this morning and say that to one of these counselors, and in your heart say, Lord, I'm asking you to come in and save me, you know what's going to happen? That wages of sin which he death, uh, which is death, which he paid on the cross of Calvary will become active and effective for you. And every sin you ever have committed or are committing or will commit in the future, he says, I forgive. I consider you no longer indebted to me because the debt is paid. Now, for you to sit there or stand there this morning when the invitation is given and not receive Christ makes as much sense as a prisoner saying, I'm glad he paid for it. I just want to stay here in prison. You're saying, I'm glad Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I just would rather go to hell. I'm just going to stay in prison this morning. So if the Lord is calling you, this is your day, your moment, you'll want to step out. I mean, it'll be in your heart. You will say, by the work of God's Spirit, I just want to step out this morning. I want today. This is God's day for me. I want to receive the forgiveness of sin. What will bring joy to your life? Consider your forgiveness by Christ. He has forgiven you all your sin. Now, one third thing that I want to share with you. Here it is. We get joy by certifying our fellowship with Christ. We have genuine joy by considering our forgiveness by Christ. Oh, here's real joy. We celebrate our freedom in Christ. If you want to really get happy, you spend some time celebrating your freedom in Christ. Now notice what he says in verse 15. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now that's an unusual verse. What in that world does that mean? Having spoiled principalities and powers. Now remember, why is Paul writing this letter to the Christians in Colossae? Why do we even have this letter? Because the Christians in Colossae practice what we call Gnosticism. It, um, a part of that, they believed in this whole series of angels and deities. 
I mean, they said, well, Jesus is important, but then, in fact, there was a, there was a, a, a group of people in that valley where Colossae was that worshipped the angel Michael, and uh, they worshipped all kinds of angels and all kinds of spirit beings. And, uh, of course, in the middle of all that, you have demonic spirits. There are those which are chief among demons, called here principalities. The word is archase. We get our word archaeology, our, our uh, archangel, archangel. First, it means principality means somebody who's in a supreme position. So there were these demonic spirits which were the chief demons. And powers, that is the word exousia. It means rulers, those who have authority. He says he spoiled them. He literally took away from them their capacity to have any authority, any power in his life or in yours as you surrender to him. He spoiled them. He removed the stinger. He, he took away from them any potency to affect your life as a believer in Christ unless you surrender to him. Now, let, let me give you a picture of this. You see, anything that anybody tells you you have to do or in whom you have to believe other than Christ to receive eternal life is straight from the devil. If somebody tells you, you've got to be baptized to be saved. Somebody tells you, you've got to believe in the following things to be saved. Somebody tells you, you've got to do the following works to be saved. See, they're putting something between you and Christ, and Christ and God. Well, it's Jesus and being baptized, Jesus and the church, Jesus and these rituals. Some churches have as much as seven different, what they would call sacraments, it's different things you have to do to get saved. I, I think, for instance, here it is Mother's Day. I'm thinking about our, our mission team that's in Poland. And there in Poland, people are locked in a, in a most unusual practice with their Catholicism. And I'm not trying to get down on anybody here. I'm just saying that in that part of Poland, they, they believe almost more in the Virgin Mary than they do in Christ. Listen to this prayer, which is a very common prayer. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our judgment. Mary is seen as almost a super intermediary. Here's Jesus, but he's just the son of Mary. And you really got to believe in Mary. And they're steep in Mariology, which is a belief that is only recent as about 600 years. There's something between you and God other than Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul, when he's writing this letter to the Colossians, he's saying, I want to tell you, there is nothing between you and God but Christ. As far as those principalities, those powers, as far as they're concerned, Christ spoiled them. He spoiled them. He took away their potency. He took away their power. He spoiled them. What has Christ done to them? Well, he says two things. First of all, he disarmed them. How did he disarm them? By rising from the dead. You see, the greatest thing they thought they could do was just take him out of the way, just to kill him. What did Jesus do? He rose from the dead. So now it's like he has, he's bulletproof. Now there's not anything they can do. What else could they do? 
but see that his flesh was crucified and Christ turned that to victory. Uh, he spoiled them. He took away any effectiveness. So he, he disarmed them. And now the Bible says he also displayed them. What does that mean? Well, in days gone by, when a man would go out and take his army and win a battle, very often they would gather up all the troops that had been captured and especially their leaders. And they would put them in a parade. And here would be the, the victorious general. And behind him would be some of his chief ranking soldiers. And behind them would be all the captives. There they would be. They'd be chained and their heads would be down. And they'd be sloughing along. This mighty army now is captive. And behind them would come the rejoicing soldiers who are part of that march of victory. And so where it says here that he spoiled them, it means he went in there, he disarmed them. He spoiled them. And then he says he displays them. He says hey, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. Behind them comes this trail of soldiers. And if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, you are among them because you are participating in the victory that Christ won on the cross and you can celebrate your freedom. There's no power out there greater than the power of Christ. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. He has won the great and final battle. And so you can rejoice in your freedom as a believer in Christ. Celebrate your freedom. Sometimes people come to church, man, they look so sober, they don't believe they've come to church unless they can say the following things. That was good, quiet music. The preacher didn't raise his voice too much and he said some nice things. And, and, and you know what? Did you know that there's people who believe that they're not supposed to tell the preacher that they enjoyed the service? I've had people come out and say, I know I'm not supposed to enjoy that service, preacher. I should say it really got on my toes, but I hate to say this. I guess I'm just wrong. I, I sort of enjoyed that. Why not? Celebrate your freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? You have been set free by the Son of God. Whom he makes free is free indeed. Celebrate your freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll guarantee you, I'll guarantee you that if you will certify your fellowship with him and consider your forgiveness by him and celebrate your freedom in him, you will have genuine, unspeakable joy in your heart. Don't you want that? Father in heaven, I'm praying now, trusting that your Holy Spirit will bring us to a point of commitment, conviction this morning. Do it, Lord, as we come to this time of invitation. I pray in Jesus' name. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, let's stand quietly to our feet. No one except the counselors moving around, and they're coming to stand here at this aisle. A moment for you to contemplate. A moment for you to meditate upon what the Son of God has done for you. Dear friend, let me ask you this question. Have you certified your fellowship? Can you say, I have received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior? And since that day when I received eternal life, I have certified that pictorially through baptism. My heart's desire is Jesus is Lord of my life is to certify it practically day by day through my behavior. One of the things the Lord would have you to do, I believe, would be to come and become a part of this church family. You may be visiting for the very first time this morning. You may have been here many times. You may just enjoy it, but you're not really. You've never been willing to say, look, I want to be a part of what's going on here at First Southern. Well, I want to urge you on this wonderful day of days to step to the aisle and make your way forward to come and say, look, I want to become a part of this church family.
I want to say yes to Christ. Could be that you've never openly certified your salvation through the symbol of baptism. Since the day you became a Christian, that's something you want to do. Come tell a counselor, look, in the near future, I want to openly follow Christ and His command in baptism and His example in baptism. And I believe there are those here this morning who would say, you know, I've never really entered into fellowship with Christ. I'm like that prisoner standing there in the prison. Christ has gone out and died on the cross, but I have not received forgiveness for Him. But in my heart, the Holy Spirit of God is at work, and today is the day because God is speaking it to my heart, and I want to receive forgiveness and cleansing and leave this building knowing that I have eternal life and abundant life. What a wonderful decision you can make this morning. And I would urge you to make your way to the aisle. Find a counselor and say, look, say it however you want to say it. I want to be saved, or I want to trust Christ, or I want eternal life. And they'll talk with you and pray with you. And before you leave this service, in a few moments, you can know that you're part of the family of God. I'm going to lead us in prayer. The choir is going to sing this great old invitation hymn, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, Lamb of God, I come. So while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, would you in your heart say, Yes, Lord, I will this morning respond to what you have spoken to my heart. Yes, Lord, I will do it. James 4, 17 says, If a man knows what is right and does it not, to him it is sin. Do you know what's right to do this morning? As a family, as an individual, do it right now. Father in heaven, I pray, trusting you to move at this invitation time. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. People are already coming to the altar. Won't you just join them right now? Lord.